It's his name. Amen. Amen. John chapter 10 and verse 1. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, and they know not the voice of strangers. This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were which he spake unto them. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not, but for to steal, and to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is a hireling, and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth, because he is a hireling, and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. You may be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace to each one of you this morning. It's a privilege to be here with you and to worship, to learn together, to fellowship. As Nate mentioned, I was asked to address some of the qualifications of overseers. You're in a time of transition here at Weavertown where you're looking, um, looking to appoint, ordain a new man to take the lead role. I don't know how you feel about that. Perhaps some of you are looking at this with, with a bit of uh, excitement because change is, is exciting. It's, it's a sign of life moving on and so forth. Maybe others of you are feeling a little apprehensive. Some of you really don't remember another bishop than Dave. Some of you do. You've had experiences in other congregations, or perhaps you have lived here and been here at Weavertown long enough that you remember previous bishops. Transition can be difficult. It doesn't have to be uh, difficult in, in bad ways, but it will be work. I can assure you of that. It will be work for Brother Dave and the leadership team. It will be work for the man who is chosen for that lead role. And I don't think I'm out of place in saying that it will be work for the congregation. That's okay. Work is not bad. I think it is important that as a congregation, you work together in this time, pulling in the same direction so that the kingdom of God is furthered and individuals 
and the group here at Weavertown benefit. I don't really remember specific things about preachers' styles or, or presentations in my early childhood. At some point, though, I became conscious that some preachers' sermons were more interesting to me. And at that point in my life, my criteria for what made a good preacher was pretty simple. If the sermon was interesting, he was a good preacher a good minister, a good leader. Now, public ministry is an important part of a pastor's work, but it's far from the only thing that he does. He also provides direction for the congregation. He mentors, he counsels, challenges, encourages, he influences and shapes both individual people and the group as a whole. I think it's right to describe it as a weighty and sobering responsibility, one that calls for qualifications that go far beyond my simple boyhood qualifications of what made for a good preacher. I've entitled the message this morning, Leadership That God Blesses. And I don't expect to tell you new things. I expect to remind you of things that you already know. I do want to look at some of the things that Scripture tells us or suggests to us about good leadership, effective leadership, godly scriptural leadership. I want to look very briefly at three words in the New Testament that that refer to pastors. I want to make some observations regarding church leadership relative to the metaphor of the shepherd. I'd like to spend just a bit of time looking at a list in 1 Timothy 3 about qualifications of pastors and then end by noting a couple of of, uh, qualities that I think are important in a lead pastor. And I want to say this, while my focus this morning is pastors, church leaders, There is a very real sense that the qualities and characteristics that are important for pastors are important for every believer. Pastors are not some sort of super-Christians. They are ordinary men who, like other believers, are in the process of being transformed in increasing measure into the likeness of Christ. As we consider the work of the pastor, I'd like to draw our attention to the words that some of the words used in the New Testament to refer to pastors. And I, as I look at Scripture, I see two um, distinct roles outlined in the New Testament church. One is the role of deacons, and the other that's, that I think is described is the role of overseers or elders, as it's often called in, uh, in the King James Version. And while there is some overlap of those responsibilities, it does seem from Scripture there's a little bit of a, of a distinct role given. The overseers and elders were primarily responsible for public teaching and preaching and also provided some administrative leadership for the church. While deacons served in a less public role mostly, focused especially on seeing after various material needs in the community of believers. 
Now, the best that I can determine from Scripture and, and some early church things, these roles were filled in a congregation by a group of mature Christian men, and one of those men served as the presiding elder. Now, in our Amish Mennonite Anabaptist tradition, we have given that presiding elder the label of bishop. I'll come back to that in a bit. But for now, I want to point out that our use of bishop in that specific presiding elder role can be a bit confusing because in the King James Version, we also find the word bishop, but the use of bishop there is interchangeable with elder or overseer. It's not specific to the role we have, we have given in our churches of, of bishop. It's, uh, the, the word bishop in the King James is more, more generally referring to pastors in general, as I, as I understand it. Now, in the New Testament, we have three Greek words that refer to this role of pastor. I mentioned the, the one, the de- I'm keeping deacons a little separate here. Um, there is a lot of overlap, and it's really maybe not that great to separate entirely um, because the, the word that's often translated deacon in the, New Te- in the New Testament means servant, and it is used to refer to things that ministers or elders do as well. But specifically regarding the pastor role, um, one of the words is presbyteros, and it is describing mostly who the man is, who the pastor is. He is an elder. Um, Sometimes the word is broad enough that it can mean simply someone who is in age older, but it can also have the implication of maturity. And it is specifically used of an Israelite Sanhedrist or a Christian presbyter or pastor. Who he is, presbyteros. The other two words talk more about what he does, what his work is. One of those words Well, they come in pairs, verb and noun pairs, but one of those is episcopeo, or episcopos is the noun form, and that has to do with overseeing or superintending, being in charge of things and and shouldering responsibility, episcopeo. The other word is poimeino, or the, the noun form poimein. And it's the word that's translated shepherd or shepherding, nurturing, governing, caring, tending, feeding. It's that whole shepherd thing that we tend to think about. And I'd like to to look at that here in just a bit. What is a shepherd? Now, in the context of your upcoming ordination here at Weavertown, you're looking particularly at the role of the presiding elder or bishop because you're looking at a transition from Brother Dave to one of the other men that's currently on the team. But I think that the work of the elders, the work of the lead elder, is really not that different from the work of all the elders together. And in the context of Scripture, I admit that I don't find a unique set of qualifications that are said to separate the lead elder from the other elders. 
also in this setting where you will be calling one of the current team to this role of lead pastor, you have already, by virtue of choosing them to serve on the ministerial team, spoken to the fact that they display some of these qualities and characteristics that I'm going to talk about this morning. Now, again, that doesn't mean they're perfect. But it does mean that you have seen evidence of God's work in their lives. It does mean that you have, you have said and seen that they are men of Christian maturity. So I said a bit ago that the role of the pastor describing what he does in the Greek is episkopeo or poimen. Let's think about that metaphor of the shepherd, the poimen. As I look at that and as I think about the verses that Brother Nate read a bit ago from John chapter 10, and if you're not still there, you might turn back to that. As I think about that, the overarching um, motivation or drive that I see in the shepherd is the well-being of the sheep. That's what fuels what the shepherd does. He's, he's looking out for the good of the sheep. Now, I admit that I don't think I understand this metaphor all that well. Uh, first of all, I'm not a shepherd. And even if I were a shepherd, I would be a 21st century Kansas shepherd, not a 1st century Middle Eastern shepherd. In the 21st century, we work with fences and fixed pastures. We have barns and sheds. We have a lot of advanced feed options. We have modern access to modern medicines. And all of those things, I think, for me, distort my understanding of what a shepherd was, I think still is, but what a shepherd was in the first century and what the people that Jesus would have been speaking to or the people that Paul would have been preaching to would have understood a shepherd to be and what his role looked like. I think the biggest distortion has to do with the relational aspect of shepherding. I'd like to draw your attention to four words relative to this metaphor of shepherding. They're, they're forms of verbs, so there is action involved, things to be done. And I'm, I'm choosing these verb forms because, because the, the work of pastoring involves a fair bit of action, of engagement, of working with. The first word is feeding. 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2, Peter writes, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly. Feed the flock of God. The Greek word translated feed is a form of poimen, shepherd, the flock. Now, I think Peter is talking here about providing spiritual nourishment for the flock when we're, when we're thinking about the church. 
That involves an awareness of the needs of the flock and an understanding of the source of nourishment. In the Middle East, the shepherd had to take the sheep to the source of nourishment to find the grass. And that involved moving the flock from place to place. It also involved a knowledge of not just the area where the grass was going to be, but a knowledge of the sheep. Because depending on the health of some of the, of the sheep, they might not be able to go to that far uh, place on the other side of the mountain where there was grass. So the shepherd needed to be aware of his, of his flock to take care of them, to feed them well. In that way, feeding was a relational thing, even in the functional aspect of providing nourishment. Today, if I were a shepherd feeding sheep, I'd probably just go to the feed store and buy some feed or some hay and feed them. Not a lot of relationship needed necessarily. The second word I want us to think about is tending. Tending is a general word, providing a beneficial situation for the whole flock. Things like seeing after the needs of a particular sheep. And I suppose feeding could be part of this, but I think the rest of, it involves more than that, the rest of caring for the flock. Maybe it has to do with health issues in the in the individual sheep or the flock as a whole. Maybe it has to do with reproduction problems. Maybe it has to do with conflicts between the, I don't know, different uh, rams or ewes or whatever. Those are all things that a pastor also needs to be aware of. What's the overall health? How are things going? Are there areas of conflict? Tending is providing a beneficial situation for all who are part of the, the congregation. And a shepherd can't care for the sheep if he doesn't know them well enough to know where they're hurting, to know what their needs are, to know what unique challenges they're struggling with. For a pastor, this tending can be Firsthand, direct, but sometimes it's also a secondhand tending. For example, if your pastors here are, are encouraging and supporting and, and building up the school teacher, they're also caring for the school children in a secondhand sort of way. And so pastors... Um, Influence and their, their tending can happen at different levels. The third word I want to I want to note is protecting, which basically means watchful or on guard, alert to danger. And of course, in the daytime that mean might mean watching for good grass. It might mean keeping the flock together so they're not so vulnerable to uh, enemy. It might mean watching for water to make sure that there's, there's water available. And if you've seen pictures of, of first century Eastern sheepfolds, Middle Eastern sheepfolds, there was often an opening that the shepherd parked in at night to, to uh, 
help protect the, the flock. Now maybe when you think about protecting the sheep, you think of the Old Testament example of David fighting off a lion um, or a bear. How does that look for the pastor? I don't know the ins and outs of your life here, but I have a little trouble imagining Nate um, walking around with a sling and flinging stones at things that, that he thinks are dangerous to the rest of you. That just doesn't strike me as something he would do. How does, how does he protect, or how do, how do the pastors protect in any situation? Growing up, I noticed that the pastor, pastoral team that I was, was uh, functioning under was highly engaged with individuals in the congregation and maybe especially with vulnerable individuals. Let me give you a few examples. One of my friends was going to college and I, I remember one of the pastors repeatedly pursuing him, talking about what's happening, how's it going, just knowing what's happening in this young man's life. I don't think it was an accident. I think he was specifically saying, here's a man, a young man, who might be vulnerable. I want to, to know him, to be next to him, so that I can be aware if there are dangers that he's, that he's facing. I remember one of, one of the pastors who, with a small group of others who met in his home, prayed for the church an ongoing regular thing and particularly prayed for some of the youth who were struggling a third man very relational man was quietly engaged in responding to a transplant um, interestingly enough from some of the things Sean was saying this was a, a transplant who had grown up in a Muslim country and had come to school in the States and had been befriended by one of the young men at, at church this pastor spent hours just talking with him, knowing him. I compare that, that, that knowing and caring for and relationship with what another friend told me some years later from, a, from another congregation, another setting, another community. He basically said, anytime the ministers want to talk with me, I'm scared. What did I do now? That's not what I saw growing up. And I don't know what all was in this, this friend's experience that might have shaped that, but it seems to me that one of the best protections against spiritual danger is strong relationships, where the pastor knows what is going on and can walk beside, offering guidance, encouragement, and support. The fourth word I want us to note with regard to this metaphor of the shepherd is knowing. And Nate read some verses from, from uh, John 10, and perhaps I'll just read the last couple of verses that he had read, 11 through 14. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, 
seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth, because he is an hireling, and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. Knowing. Notice especially two things. There's the heart of the hireling who doesn't care for the sheep and who runs at the first sign of things getting difficult. He doesn't know the sheep. He doesn't care about the sheep. And notice, too, that the shepherd does know. There is a, there is a relationship, an intimate knowing in the, in the shepherd with his sheep. The effective pastor is one who is cultivating relationships, one who actively cares for his congregants, pursuing them, knowing them. I'd like to switch a bit now and look at some of the qualities of overseers that are mentioned in 1 Timothy 3. I invite you to turn there. I'll be reading a few verses in just a bit. First Timothy 3, let's read 1 through 7. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity, for if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. We don't have time to dig into all of these um, in depth. It would be beneficial for us. But I'd like to look at a few of them um, quickly here. And before we go there, I'd like to have us note something that I think should underlie all of this. It's from Acts 6, verse 3, which is the account of, of uh, appointing the deacons. And Acts 6, 3 says this. It's the church leaders speaking to the congregation. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. What I want us to notice is that these men that they were choosing were full of the Holy Ghost, and I think that's important as we think about church leadership. It's, of course, important for all believers. I think... For me, the best illustration of, of this full of the Holy Ghost and being sensitive to the Holy Ghost, growing in our, in our knowledge of and, and our um, awareness of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the, being attuned to the voice of the Spirit, has to do with, with what I understand happens when someone loses one sense. Let's say someone loses their eyesight. Other senses become more highly attuned to what's going on. Perhaps the sense of hearing is sharpened because 
of our blindness. That's what I see in the, in the attunedness to the Holy Spirit. As we mature in Christ and become more sensitive to His Spirit, we become so able to hear all those fine details that we didn't used to hear when we could see physically. I'm, I'm crossing over with the illustration now. That should, that, that increasing sensitivity, that maturity that that indicates should increasingly characterize all of us. But it should certainly be evident in the life of the pastor, the elder, the overseer. I'm going to choose some of these to look at and skip over others. The first one that Paul lists here is blameless. Now, none of us here this morning are blameless from the sense that we have never done anything that we have always avoided doing things that are blameworthy. But there is another way that we can, we can be blameless, and that is when we accept responsibility for the things that we have done and make restitution or seek restoration. That is also a way to be blameless. For the believer, and maybe in the context this morning, for the pastor, all that the Holy Spirit has brought to his attention needs to be addressed. If he has done this, then he is blameless. Secondly, the husband of one wife. The Greek says it simply, a man of one woman. Now, I don't think this is primarily a prohibition of polygamy, but it does, of course, prohibit polygamy. It's broader than that, is what I'm saying. It's a call to faithfulness and to moral purity. In the culture of the time, the wealthy man had multiple options for sexual partners. There was his wife. There was his favorite slave girl. There were temple, uh, pagan temple prostitutes. I think Paul is addressing that cultural norm that made it acceptable for these things to be that way, and he is saying the pastor needs to be a man of one woman. Christian maturity involves faithfulness and moral purity. The overseer must be a one-woman man, physically, emotionally, mentally. Vigilant. The Greek word used here is used only three times in Scripture, according to my study. In both of the other two places, it is translated as sober in the King James Version. The Greek word here, if I look at Greek dictionaries, I don't, I don't read Greek, so I'm a little limited, but if I look at the work of others, it is defined as a sense of alertness. So vigilance does make sense. But Strong's also says that the word means circumspect, which means um, alert to and examining things from all sides, checking it out, being aware of details, heedful of circumstances and potential consequences. Pastors, then, are to be men who are thoughtful, prudent, wise. They are able to see under the surface. 
They're able to see beyond the immediate to help them make good decisions in the present. Going on, one of the next ones is of good behavior. What does that mean? I sometimes hear moms or dads say to their children something about being on their best behavior. Is that what we're talking about with pastors here? They kind of have to toe the line and make sure they don't... Well, maybe. I mean, that's not all outside of the realm of what this means, but I think it's more than that. It's not so much a contrast with naughty behavior as it is a sense of order and appropriateness, even of beauty, that's meant by this word. The the Greek word here that's translated of good behavior has to do with um, what's sometimes translated modest. And it has to do with an orderly or well-arranged fashion. Now, we're not speaking primarily here about external things when we're talking about this kind of orderliness. I think it's good for us to be, to be well-dressed and, and not sloppy in our presentation, but it's probably quite a bit more important that we're not sloppy in our inner man, that we're not careless there, but that the inner man is well-ordered harmoniously arranged. The next one is hospitable. And it's a word that means fond of guests. And Sean had quite a bit to say about hospitality this morning. Appreciated that. He mentioned two things that are often um, really seen as as an important part of hospitality, and they are our homes, and our tables. There is something about bringing people into our homes that conveys this sense of hospitality that is, I don't know, it's it's special. And the table, eating together, also does some things that Sean so, so ably told us about. But I'd like to go to a slightly different angle here because hospitality is extended in places beyond our homes and when we're not seated at the table sharing a meal. I think this happens when we show others that they are valued and respected. That's kind of at the heart, kind of the baseline of hospitality. We, we show others that they are valued and respected. And so that's much broader than hosting someone for Sunday lunch. It happens in ordinary conversation. It might happen with just meeting someone's eye because you're recognizing them as a person of dignity. Now, it's going to look different depending who you are. The outgoing person may use his words to put someone else at ease and thereby show hospitality. But the more reserved, the more introspective person might not use his words but by thoughtful acts or a few well-chosen words, put someone at ease and thereby show hospitality. Sean, am I remembering right that the house was Peace House? 
I took note of that because I think when we are people who are at peace with ourselves, we can offer peace to others. And so perhaps our motto should be peace house for our places of, of residence, certainly, but maybe it should be peace person so that wherever we go, we are offering that as, as part of who we are in hospitality to others. Able to teach, apt to teach. I know a number of ordained men whose study skills and public speaking ability I would describe as pretty weak. Does that mean that they should be disqualified? It says here, able to teach, or apt to teach in the King James. How should we think of this? Are we talking primarily about a skill? Or is this somehow a character quality that Paul is referencing? Now, I think it's easy for us to be enamored by the skill of teaching. And in this age of electronic communication, we can listen to all sorts of sermons or podcasts or anything else, and we can hear many skilled speakers it's easy to become enamored by that. We might begin to feel like that kind of polish is what makes for effective teaching. Now, I do think that all of us should cultivate a desire to effectively communicate. However, without a well-rounded godly life backing up what we say, it doesn't matter how skillful we are as a teacher or how polished our, our speeches are without the backing up of a life behind it. It's pretty weak. Author Gene Getz says of this app to teach, he describes it as able to teach with a teachable spirit. He suggests that the foundation of effective teaching is teachableness. Teachableness indicates a desire to learn and an openness to truth. And so that suggests that apt to teach is a, character at, it's a characteristic that is more of a platform from which to be heard rather than a skill. Now this morning I'm standing on a, I guess a raised platform here. That's so those of you in the back can more easily see me instead of dodging heads as you look up here toward the front. In a similar way, the pastor who has a teachable spirit, he wants to learn. He's looking to learn from others. The pastor who is humble in his relating with others, the one who is trustworthy in every way in life, he has a platform to communicate to others because of how he's living, because of who he is. The polished communicator can effectively convey ideas, and that's a useful skill. But the transmission of ideas alone is not as formative as the combination of example and teaching. So let's not get too 
um, enamored with the skill of teaching. That said, let's cultivate good communication so that we can effectively teach. For the sake of time, I'm going to skip entirely over verse 3. I'm going to make a couple of comments about the, the description of ruling well his own household. I see here, as, as we look at the whole verse, all of the, what Paul says here, I see here two parts. One is manage the household well, and the other is having the respect of children. So there's kind of the two sides. The first has to do with the way a father parents, or maybe the way he administrates his family. Uh, and the description here in, in Scripture is just that he does it well. It doesn't say it has to look this way or that way. It's that he does it well. Now, I think we can understand that it should be scriptural in its approach. He shouldn't be provoking his children, as Ephesians 6 says. But it doesn't give us a lot of details. The flip side, then, the respect of children, I think gives us some insight, though, into whether he's doing it well. Having said that, I recognize that children make their own decisions. And just because someone, a child, does not respect his dad does not mean dad has been poorly handling this. So how do we evaluate? How do we, how do we understand these things? I don't come with a formula. I don't have a formula. But I would offer a few things to consider. Consider patterns in both parenting and in children's responses. What is seen over time? Not a particular instance, but the pattern over time. Secondly, look for direction, the way things are moving over time. Thirdly, I think it's helpful to consider the starting point, perhaps of the parent, perhaps of the children. There's a lot of variety here. I have a coworker who, ha who adopted several teens. Parenting had some unique challenges for that couple. Now, I don't want to minimize the adequacy of the grace of God to transform people and provide in every situation, but I think it's good and right for us to cultivate some awareness of this kind of thing. And I already mentioned the fourth one, recognize that children have free will and make their own choices. Parenting is important. It's an incredible gift, moms and dads, to parent in a godly way. But even if your parenting is perfect, your children will make their own decisions. You cannot guarantee a certain outcome. Keep that in mind, too, as you consider your pastor's. As I wrap this up, I'd like to mention yet two qualities that should mark particularly the lead pastor, though I think it, it fits for all, all uh, anyone in leadership. A good lead pastor is able to distinguish between leading and managing. I'm defining managers as those that see the details and are, are able to get things done efficiently. They, they, they figure out how to make it work and get it done. 
Leaders, in, by comparison or by contrast, are aware of the big picture. They, at times at least, step back from the details to look at the broader scope of things. Someone gave the illustration of, I think it was maybe an exploration party working their way through a jungle or something like that. The manager type is trying to figure out how can we get this underbrush cleared so we can move ahead. And the leader climbs a tree and says, we need to go that way. You see the difference? Both are important functions in organization or church life. But leaders need to be able to lead. And an effective lead pastor can distinguish between the two and understands that while there may be times when he needs to exercise good management, his more important responsibility is to provide good leadership by seeing the overall picture well and saying, we need to go this way. Someone made this observation about our congregation. Too often, church leaders spend too much time managing and too little time leading. The second mark of a good lead pastor or bishop is the awareness that he is part of something larger than himself. An individual who is given responsibility grows accustomed to shouldering that responsibility, and it's important that he does. If he doesn't, things can get off track very quickly. However, in shouldering responsibility, we can easily come to the understanding that if I don't do it, it won't get done. It revolves around me. And that's a danger that leaders ought to guard against. One of the best antidotes is a proper understanding of God and his work in the world. And it is so much bigger than me and what I'm doing. So much bigger than you and what you're doing. Pastors, I suggest that we should cultivate ways, we should try to create space for others to lead. That helps us remember we're not indispensable, and it helps develop others. Secondly, seek advice and input from others. Now, I find that's easy to do when it's someone who is an expert and knows more than I do about a certain thing. I'll gladly learn from them. What I find is more difficult is learning from people who think differently than I do, maybe have slightly different priorities than I do or different ideals than I do. The person who is able to learn from others who differ with him is demonstrating an awareness that he is large, part of something that is larger than himself. Good lead pastors intentionally guard against having too much center around them. They are able to see God at work in ways that are outside of their own sphere of influence. In conclusion, our focus this morning has been on the work of pastors, and I've tried to describe some of the characteristics and qualities that I think mark a godly and effective pastor. I'd like to draw us back to the word relationship. Pastors, the role of pastoring, the work of pastoring is a relational work. For all of us as believers, 
Some of you will never be pastors. But all of you as believers, the work of the, of the Christian is relational work. Cultivate the relationship with the Father. Live in relationship with Him. And be transformed into the likeness of the Son. I invite you to kneel in prayer.